Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 15th, 2018, we continue our series titled Ephesians Made Worthy, Walk Worthy. Today's sermon, Christianity at Work, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Enjoy! Before I jump too far into this, though, I really want to read this passage together. I'd love for you to follow along with us because, you know, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page as we're moving forward here. So track with me if you can here, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Now, the passage we're talking about this morning is about our work, and maybe more importantly, why you and I go to work. But he's also going to mention something here at the beginning here in verse 5, and that is slavery. Now, the English translation that you're looking at will use the word bondservant, but I'm telling you the word means slave. And I want to hit on that just for a second. You know, the city of Ephesus likely had more slaves even than freemen. Does that blow your mind even to think about that? That there would be more slaves in a city than even free people? Some estimates that I've read have said that there were as many as 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. That's amazing if you think about it. You know, slavery to me is one of the two most despicable evils in all of history. The thought that one man could think that he could really own another man, that he could sell them, he could separate them from their family and even kill them if they'd like. I mean, that was just, it's evil. There's no getting around it. It's just evil. It's important to understand, though, that slavery then, back in those days, would be way different than what we would think of when we think of the Civil War era slavery. Slavery in biblical times was not typically race-based. It was not permanent. It didn't involve kidnapping. Usually what happened was someone became a slave because one nation went to war and defeated another nation, and when they did, they would drag those prisoners and their families off to serve as slaves in their nation for 10 to 15 years. The biblical models that you find, the examples that you find in the scriptures, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Exodus and 2 Kings, had much more to do with indentured debt Now, if you don't know what that means, let me explain it like this. Let's say for a second that I want to become a rancher or a farmer. So I go to Dan here, and Dan loans me the money to go out and buy a piece of land, but somehow in the process, I lose it all. But I'm now on the hook to him. And so what I have the choice then is that point is I can either be taken to court 
by law, which could throw me in jail, or I could either have myself go forward and become his bondservant, a slave by choice, or someone in my family. You know, unfortunately, very often that became children. And they would go and they would serve a period of time or they would serve and, and you know, keep them out of jail type of thing. Usually there was a six-year maximum that that happened in. Because the seventh year, according to you know, uh, Exodus chapter 21, was the year of Jubilee and all of your debts would be canceled at that point. Bond servants in those days, in other words, someone that was indentured could own their own land, they could take a master to court. In fact, some of them had people serving as the role of bond servants even to them. This was the world that Christianity was born into. You know, obviously, history, I, I love history, and I know that many of you do as well. History is not a picture of righteousness. I mean, for many people, you know, they say, I, I hear this statement all the time, I just wish we could go back to the good old days. When was that? When was it that people were not being evil to one another? Because I can't find it. Now, I want to be really clear here. Slavery, the way it was practiced in this nation during the Civil War and pre-Civil War times was absolutely, without a doubt, a sin. And it was evil in every possible way. In fact, let me show you something. Because a lot of people have said, well, the Bible does not condemn slavery. That's not true at all. Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 says this. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. What part of that is not clear? It's absolutely clear that it was a sin, it was wrong, every single thing about it was, was evil, and Christians knew that. In fact, most historians will tell you that slavery in this country was largely destroyed because evangelical preachers and evangelical politicians went forward and began to press the message that this was wrong, that it was a sin. So you had Wesley and Whitfield and those guys preaching this in the pulpits and Wilberforce, you know, out there just talking about the fact that this was evil. Now, others have said, well, why doesn't the Bible just have a whole book entitled Slavery? and the evil of it. Well, because it's mixed through all the books in one sense, but in large part it's because the scriptures are way more focused on changing the hearts of people than they are changing social evils. So Paul talks about how we live in the circumstances that we're in. Now all of this comes about because of a statement that got made back in chapter 5, verse 21. If, you, if you're there in Ephesians, go back and look at that. This all starts with this. In chapter 5, verse 21, he, Paul writes and he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the reason why that's important, because mutual submission becomes the basis for how you and I live in our society, in our world, in every possible way. And so he starts off talking there about, well, what does submission look like in a marriage? And then he travels on a little bit, and last week Doug talked about this, that he talked about what does submission look like in a home with the parenting and child relationships. And now he gets to work. What do you do when you go into the office? What does submission look like even there? At the heart of the issue with work 
There's the issues of greed and laziness. And what most people don't see, the primary issue in the passage here is our testimony. That's the largest issue when it comes to work. Now, obviously, not everybody's greedy. I mean, but I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot for you and I to stop and think, hey, what boss would not want people to work more hours and make less money, right? Or what worker would not want to work, you know, less, you know, less hours and make more money? You know, a, a few years back, Gail and I had a chance to, to take a trip of a lifetime and we went to France and while we were there, they were debating a 20-hour work week and how good it would be for society. There's a reason why they're broke. They don't go to work. You know, not everybody's lazy either. They certainly weren't there even when we went there. But so many people detest work. Even as I was studying for this and I was reading about the historical context and all the the things like that, you know, the Greeks, they hated work. They really did. They wanted slaves to do all of the work. So for them, it was just a great thing that you had people in their history like Alexander the Great that would go and and wipe out civilizations and bring all those people back in because they wanted slave labor to do every single thing. The Jews, on the other hand, would have been just the opposite. The Jews looked at work like it was a very noble thing, that it was a, a developer of character, And so they trained every single child, even if you were from a really wealthy family and were never going to have a day that you, you know, sweat would break your bow because, you know, your your, your forehead because of work or anything like that, they still trained you with a skill because they saw the value in it. You know, biblically, some really important truths that we learn about when we think about work. I mean, the Bible never paints work as a bad thing. I mean, in Genesis chapter one, you see God the Father working. You even see him come to the place where he takes a rest. Adam, in Genesis chapter two, Adam is given work to do in chapter two, verse 15, even before he gets the promise that his spouse, Eve, will come along. Jesus comes into the world and he's not born in the lap of luxury. He's not in some place where he's coddled all the time. He's a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He got dirty. Work's not a bad thing. Biblically, work has boundaries to it. Exodus chapter one tells us it can't be immoral. What you're doing cannot have a moral consequence to it. Daniel chapter three tells us it can't be idolatrous. Acts chapter four says it can't silence the gospel. The truth is that work provides a real way for us to live out our faith and at the same time, provide for our families and for other people. The key is, is that you and I have to begin to see that work as our mission. The workplace becomes our mission field. It becomes the place where we connect with others, and our faith gets seen by so many. And so before we go too far in all this, let me stop and and pray that our our hearts would all be together as we go forward in this. Would you join me? Father, I pray that you really would open our eyes to see, Lord, the mission field that you have put us in. That it's not as much about the work that we do, Lord, it's more about why and the people that we come in contact with. But Father, would you teach us to do it well in the way that honors you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.
All right, back into Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six, the first thing we're gonna see here in verses five and six is we're gonna see sincerity at work. And I don't wanna lose you on this. I wanna tell you that in verses five and six alone, I think Paul's gonna tell us five things here, five parts of that sincerity here before we even move on to the verses after that. Verse five, he says, bond servants. Remember, that's, that's the Greek word doulos. That's where we get the word slave. You know, with so many people enslaved in their society, you can see why Paul would aim this at them because they were doing the predominant amount of work. You know, truthfully, a bond servant in those days, like I said, could have been someone that was there for indentured debt. It could have been someone there with the traditional view of slavery. So what Paul does is Paul's going to give us five truths in verses five and six regarding our sincerity at work. Now, here's the first truth, okay? Our behavior. Look what he says. Bond servants, obey. Ooh, that's a tough one. Obey. Do you know why it's a big deal to obey? Because of your testimony. I mean, whether you know it or not, disobedience is a really lousy testimony in life. If we don't do what we're told to do. In fact, one of the things that's so interesting about it, it very often reveals sort of an authority issue in my life. Like, I know better than you, I'm not doing it, you know. And by the way, have you ever noticed that if we do it in the workplace, we'll also do it with God? Yeah, God, I know that you want me to do that, but I, I, I got this one, God. I think I know what's better on this one. It reflects an attitude inside of us. That's not who God wants us to be. That's not who he's called us to be. It's in those moments that we're called on to obey, even if we see it differently. In work, what we have to realize is so much is revealed about our character and how we approach it. There's a second truth, and that is our attitude. Look what he says here again in verse five. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Now, he's not talking about being afraid, and he's not talking about being scared, because if you remember there, if you look back at verse nine, Paul warns against the idea of threatening somebody with some type of a bodily harm. So it's not a fear thing. He's talking about an attitude that has great respect. It would be like if someone that you totally respected, you know, in the world came walking in right now, there might be a, a faster heartbeat inside of you because you have a sense of respect. That is the sense of attitude that we're supposed to take with us into the worst place. Keep going here. There's a third truth here, and that is our commitment. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. A sincere heart, there's our commitment. You know, Christianity is not supposed to be just a Sunday thing. One of the things about changing our lives is that change ought to be something that happens 24-7. And so that my faith comes out in every single circumstance that I'm in. Now let me tell you why it's a big deal. Because most of us go to work 8 to 10 hours a day. So 8 to 10 hours a day, that faith gets put on display. That faith gets challenged somebody has a chance to observe my life. And that tells me that I should not turn my faith off when I go to work. I don't know why, you know, there's this, this thought that, well, you know what, here's my spiritual life and then this is my work life and I just put my head down and I just go. That's not what God is asking you to do. 
God is asking you to take your faith right with you. So when you go to work, your faith doesn't stop and stay in the car. Or it doesn't, you know, you don't leave it in the cubicle or put it in the locker. It's on display every single day. Our faith should change, should challenge and change every single part of my activity regardless of the location. There's a fourth truth, and that is our motives. Again, look back at verse five. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. There's the motive. I need to approach my work like Jesus is my boss. It's simple as that. To do that, my faith cannot be compartmentalized. It can't just be a Sunday thing when I walk in. It can't be a Wednesday thing when I'm at small group meets. It can't be a family thing when we all gather for you know, some kind of dinner. If Christ is my boss, that means every relationship I have, every activity I have, every single day, regardless of location, even when it comes to work, is done for him. Keep your finger here, and I want you to go over to the right to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Because this is a pretty normal and natural and regular message through the scriptures. Colossians chapter 3 says this in verse 23. Whatever you do, stop. Yeah, but come on. I mean, this is just a a part-time job. I'm just doing it till I, no, whatever you do. Yeah, but you don't understand the people that I work with. They really, no, whatever you do. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men. You don't go to work for the people there. You go to work for the Lord. That's a common message. Give your very best effort because you are doing this for Jesus. Now, there's a fifth truth. This one comes from verse 6. Paul writes and he says this, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, in other words, slaves for the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart, not as eye pleasers. You know how you translate that? Not just when people are watching. Not just when it's gonna make you look good. See, work provides that opportunity for us to model something before people that they're going to make a judgment on. And by the way, we do it every single day. I mean, tell me you don't go into a certain store and the way people respond, the the bounce in their step tells you something about them, whether they're hard workers or they're not. The the attitude that the, the person that comes and serves you at a table tells you something about them. Well, you know what? Your attitude, our attitude as believers tells a lost world a lot about us. Our work provides an opportunity for people to see sincerity inside of us. Something that's just different than they're what they're used to. Now, Paul's gonna change here and he's gonna move beyond these five things he tells us here in verses five and six and he's gonna come to the second thing here And that is in verse seven, he's gonna talk about the ministry that we have at work. The ministry that we have at work. Look at verse seven. He says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. 
Now, do you realize that if we actually practice verse 7, that we'd never have any production issues in life? I mean, we get every single thing we want done completely. We just have to see ourselves going to work for the Lord daily. That's what our forefathers were taught. This used to be a common message within the workplace. It used to be a common message within the home. And it was a common message even at church. You know who Martin Luther was? The original reformer? Listen to his words here. He says, the role of a shopkeeper or a housewife are just as sacred as the role of a priest. Why? Because it's not necessarily what you're doing, it's why you're doing it. It's who you're affecting. You have to come to the place where you believe that our work is our mission field. William Tyndale, who, who printed Bibles illegally so the common man could read the scriptures, not in such a way that only the rich could read the scriptures, but to put it out there for all to read, said this, there is a difference between washing dishes and preaching the word, but in terms of pleasing God, there is no difference. Why? Because the sincerity of my heart, my effort, all of that either honors God and is a testimony to everybody around me or they don't. You get what he's saying? Every task, every job matters to God. Every task and every job is an opportunity to honor him or dishonor him. And so the Uber driver or the Lyft driver that loves Jesus when he pulls up in front of a house and picks you up has the opportunity to encourage you and build you up and be a little bit different than the one that came before them if they'll simply do it. Or the server that comes to your table that, that brings food, they could bring so much more if they just simply took an opportunity to stop and encourage and love, build up a little bit. The teacher that imparts truth to our children hopefully will also impart the love of God and, and value and worth and the beauty of being an individual. The police officer that unfortunately has to step into difficult situations right when people are at their most vulnerable and hurting at the worst, just like any doctor would if they, if they hear the word cancer or anything like that. We step into people's lives right when they need us the most. And you know what they need? At that moment, what they need is a believer that believes in their heart, God put me here for a reason. You know, all of those things are beyond what I could do on a Sunday morning here from the pulpit. You realize that? We have to start seeing the ministry that we have around the water cooler. The ministry that we have in the cubicles. And just in and interacting with other people. Because of work, we have the ability to talk to people who would never set foot within a church. You've all heard that saying before, well, you may be the only Bible that some people read. That's really true you may be the only model of what of a life that is completely turned over to Christ really looks like. What Paul is saying here is don't downplay the place, the position, 
the opportunity that Christ has put you in. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus, in one of the most important messages he ever, ever gave, the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5, chapter 7, he makes this statement. He says, let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Here's, here's what it doesn't say. Go to church all the time and then everybody will respond. No, let them see your good works there in the workplace and for whatever reason be drawn to you. There's, there's something different about you. There's a sense of peace about you. There's a sense of encouragement. When everybody else in the office is super highly competitive, why is it you're friendly? What's different about you? Nothing could be better than that. To give the Lord an opportunity to use you at that time. See, Jesus here wasn't talking about letting your light shine before others just when you're at church. That eight to 10 hours a day that we go to work or school, that's a lot of time to be shiny. Work, if we, if we look at it right, if we go to this the right way, really what work should it be coming for us is worship. Because it's an opportunity to honor God at that moment. Now there's a third thing that he says here in verse eight. He gives us the rewards at work. Verse eight says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. So not only does God allow us through work to pay our bills and provide for our families and to help other people, but that becomes the platform for a model of faith out to my coworkers and those people that I serve. Pretty important. Let me ask you a question. Do you know what the last promise in the Bible is? Pretty important statement. The last promise in the Bible is made by Jesus himself. Revelation 22, verse 12 says this, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done at church. I'm sorry, we got the last part of that right. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done in his small group. No. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That's a pretty point. That word done, that's pretty big in that place, right? It's everything. 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 Not just what's spiritual, it's everything. And do you realize what that means? That those eight to 10 hours a day you're either at work or you're at school, that is not time to waste. We interact with so many people. The truth here is that God is going to hold us accountable and reward us as such for every single thing we do. Now let me tell you what that might mean. Will God hold me accountable then for the honesty I display in sales? Yes. Well, what if my business is to get the very best deal for the customer, but I'm just a little bit tired today, so I just sort of phoned it in today and I got him any old deal. Is God going to hold me accountable for that? Yes. I ought to be given 60 minutes of work for 60 minutes of, excuse me, I ought to be given 60 minutes of pay for 60 minutes of work. There's a fourth thing 
And that is in verse nine. And that is the warning at work here. He says, masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with God. The warning here is that God is watching, that he is the master over all. So whether I'm an employee or an employer, God is watching. He is the ultimate judge. So if I'm an employee, my performance and my attitude on the job matter. If I'm the employer, how I treat those that are under me matters. Look, here's the truth. You may be the CEO of your company. You may be the CFO, the CIO, the owner. If you're a Christian, you're still an employee of Jesus Christ. He's the boss. Do you understand that? Our mission is to honor God. Work gives him that platform. It provides for my daily needs. God expects me to even enjoy it. Let me give you an example. Keep your finger in Ephesians, and I want you to go all the way back to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's right before Isaiah. It's after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes. The book of wisdom in the Bible. Written by Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Listen to what he has to say here. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. You know what he means by toil? Work. This is God's gift to man. Drop down to verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. And who can bring him to see what will be after him? Look, I want to be really clear about this. Work should not drive you. That's a false drive. It's a bad one. It will leave you empty and your family as well. And work is not where you get your identity. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your identity is in Christ. And work is not an excuse to ignore your family or your church or being involved. But work does give you the opportunity to honor or dishonor the one you would live your life for. Look, the most important thing that I could tell you this morning, and if you don't get anything other than what I'm going to say right now, please get this. If you write stuff down, write this down, okay? It's not what we do that is secular or sacred. It's why you do it. It's not what we do that is either secular or sacred. It's why we do it. And the why here is Jesus asked me to. If God is my master, and perhaps that's a, that's a question you're gonna have to ask for yourself, but if God is my master and I am his bondservant, if he asks me to work hard, I should work hard. You may not see it as important, 
I want to encourage you. You do not have his point of view. You cannot see what he sees. You cannot know what he knows. What does your work reveal about you? Would you pray with me? Father, Lord, I would ask that um, as each of us survey our own lives, we would see that the, the place that you've placed us, whether that job were to last 50 years or five days, doesn't matter. The issue is how do I approach this job, God? Will I see it as the mission field that you've placed me in? God, would you move us to be missionaries in the workplace? To see the role that we have, to honor you with an excellent effort and an attitude that befits someone that has been saved by grace, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.